that uh, Mount Prayer Bible Church is at Five Pines, and uh, I had been asking folks to pray that God would set an open door before me, and that I would sense that God was using me, and so I'm so thankful for that. Really a delicious kind of walk down memory lane as well, uh, to be together with um, folks that I've known for literally decades. I, uh, I saw
researchers performed a telling experiment to see what effect hope had on those undergoing hardship. There were two sets of laboratory rats. Both of them were placed in um, tubs of water. The researchers left one set in the water and found that within an hour, all the mice were drowned. The other set they were given rest, but because suddenly they had hope. Those animals somehow hoped that if they could stay afloat just a little longer, someone would reach down and rescue them. If hope holds such power for simple rodents, brothers and sisters, how much greater should be its effect on us? It's been said that face-to-face, again, with the internal ministry of God the Spirit. God the Spirit is doing a work inside of us, and part of that ministry involves hope. Even though at times, in our hope, we groan, which seems like a strange juxtaposition. Groaning hope. Does that seem odd to you? Does that land on your ears strangely? It does to mine. We recognize the truth from God's Word here is that God hope in the midst of suffering and struggle. Pastor Jeff began the section on suffering in verse 18 last week with Hagar, the horrible, who I didn't know personally, wondering out loud, why me, leaving God to respond, why not? And he uncovers the tension there that strains our senses. Why are the king's kids, why are the adopted of the most who belong to King Jesus, the sovereign over all things, why are they suffering? We understand it in the life of others, but why us? Divine royalty? If I'm in an intimate relationship with God, should I not be excused from this course? Can I withdraw past it? Can I withdraw past it? But God the Spirit helps us to understand the purpose of suffering. God the Spirit helps us to understand the duration of suffering. Whatever we endure here pales in comparison to what we enjoy there. That's a tension that we ought to feel, that we understand as the children of the King. It's kind of like suffering is a light affliction now, Paul will say elsewhere in Scripture. It's like comparing your sandbox to the Sahara. It's like comparing a mound of dirt in your backyard to Mount Everest. It's like comparing, I don't know, some little rodent to an elephant. It's, it's 
might place us in, courses that are non-elective, that are essential to our matriculation through our journey here on, on earth. Contemplate in Scripture what Peter's doing here. The motif, the theme is repeated again and again, first suffering and then ruling. First it is the suffering servant and then the ruling king. Fourth, even as Jeff mentioned last week, first the and then the crown. So that's the template that we see. And as children of the king, as those adopted by him, that is, a, that is the force of our life that we have to feel. A fellowship in suffering is not an honorary title. It's a practical one. We're children of the king. How do we reconcile this? What does God's word communicate to us? To be forewarned is to be forearmed, is it not? recognize the truth of what God communicates to us in his word. So what this does is this, this takes the ouch out of it, or it takes from suffering the idea that it's all purposeless and meaningless, and it never ends, and there's no way to explain it or understand it. So let me lift up two banners over the text before us, because I think it breaks naturally almost in half. In verses 19 and 22, I wrote this heading over those verses, the hope-filled expectation of creation. The hope-filled expectation of creation. For the earnest, earnest carries with the idea of literally of stretching out. Think of someone trying to stretch through the bars of a cell. They're each keys in the opposite wall. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Then it goes on to talk about creation as groaning in birth pains. And all the mommies here get this. maybe, well, we're in a holding pattern. Think about the, the place at the airport that calls all the shots. What do they call that? The tower. There's holding patterns. You're not allowed to land yet. It's not the continuation of the journey yet. And that's the sense here that we get where creation is yearning and groaning for this season of restoration when God reveals his power to the sons of God. shrieking and the convulsing of creation, the groaning and the 
traumatic, guttural thing. It's intense. And I, I'm going to be square with you. I'm not a good sufferer. Whenever it gets to groaning, and my wife will confess this, Scott's a bit of a baby. Don't handle pain well. The reality is, is that God says that creation is in that groaning pattern. There is an utterance of pain. If the trees of the field can clap their hands, and if the mountains and the hills can bow down, you understand that this has a this has a metaphorical component to it. This is to express a picture or an image. We skip ahead to verse 22, and it says that the whole creation groans. Groaning has a kind of universal understanding to it. Creation is waiting for a change, waiting for a pivot point. Joseph B. Meyer, no stranger to suffering, Stands up and begins the loud ovation that thunders down. Do you know why that is? 
everybody hurts. And so part of the refrain of the song is, so hold on, so hold on, so hold on. It's because everybody gets that. You know that things are not the way they are supposed to be. You know that there is a groaning because of sin. And because of our rebellion towards Creator God, there is the subject of the curse. If you don't understand that things are not the way they are supposed to be, you need to be an observer, a keen observer of the world in which we live. There are two things wired into creation. One is futility and the other is hope, which seem to be at odds with one another, but they're not really. Things are not really the way they're supposed to be, but one day...
think about it this way. Your body is a musical instrument. It's a tool. It's a weapon designed to fight a good fight. It's not yours. All the people that say, this is mine, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want. No, you can't. You belong to the king. And part of what we're to do with our bodies is using it for the glory of the Lord. Because our glorified bodies will be freed from the keeping bondage of our terminal humanness. Isn't that good? And I want us to be purely physical this morning, but it can't hurt at least to think about what's going on with us physically. Because we think about it all day long. One of the things that I really miss, because I'm at the almost the ripe old age of 54, one of the things that I really miss is the ability to run. I mean, there's some time with the wind in my hair, so I miss that too. Right? And you just, it was effortless. You didn't think about it. You didn't have to think about it. You could just pick up the pace, and next thing you knew, a skippity hoppity thing, and you were on your way. You were running. Wow. Look at that guy. I was thinking about this in front of our softball a couple weeks ago. I know it's coming down over there. I'm just not going to get there. That's kind of what happens. Romans 6, 13 says, Don't yield yourself to be caught in sin. God designed a physical, material universe to display His glory and grace. Some people are the artists who express themselves through creativity, through glory to behold. And yet, it's not gender between our joy and our play, our joy and our worship. There'll be no competition between our ability to lift up the name of Jesus Christ on high and sing worthies to him in this world. You ever notice that our world does not have this hope, does not understand who it is, why it is here, where it came from, and where it's going? Warren Wiersbe says that a typical inscription on a grave during the Apostle Paul's day went something like this, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. Man, that's pretty nihilistic, isn't it? Pretty traumatic and sad. We understand that as the people of God, hope needs a foundation. It's built on something. But more specifically, we are built on someone, the person and work of Jesus Christ. I was reading this past week from John Stott, how So what's he do? He sends his son who becomes visible so that we can see and savor him and understand about God. And it's Jesus Christ who lays down his life as the lamb to take away our sins and make payment for our rebellion against God. But then, of course, we realize that having finished his work, Christ returns to the right hand of the Father. So how 
is God made visible today? Think about this, brothers and sisters. God is made visible today through the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. Isn't it interesting that we're called that? How do we manifest the gospel? By living out the life of Christ before the watching world. Brothers and sisters, when you do not live in conjunction with the life of Jesus Christ, you are clouding Jesus Christ to the world. When your life is off base and wacky, when you're as mean and nasty and selfish and brittle as the people next to you, you are clouding their ability to see King Jesus in you. That's why J.I. Packer calls evangelism incarnational part of this groaning that we experience. I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be. I'm saved by Christ. In verse 24, we're saved by this attitude of hope, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Let me even sort of play on words and kind of somewhat struggle with Paul's legalese there. But he says essentially this, if you can see it, you're not hoping in it. You hope in the things that you can't see. And so here we are as followers of the king and realizing that, that faith has this invisible component to it. So we really can't see God's agenda and the next things. He has to reveal it to us and tell it to us. And God's spirit has to take that truth and inform our spirits and counsel us along the way. And that's why even as we journey and we pilgrim through as pilgrims, we can still do so with hope. Our hope for deliverance from the presence of sin and all its horrid results are based on the promise of God. We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. If he saves us, Today, 
someone read God's word in their language, someone labor to give the understanding in that, to fellowship together with other believers after a grueling week where we've been dirtied and muddied up by the watching world. No, we don't even think about that. It doesn't, doesn't even contemplate that. Secondly, this, the groaning of creation is the result of man's sin. since the fall of man in our own bodies that it's bearing out that definition. Fourthly, this, the groaning of creation, this is good news for us in the shadow of Romans chapter 8 and the fruit from the tree that it gives to us. The groaning of creation is limited. It has a shelf life, a best before date, like the stuff in your fridge. There is hope for creation. God's purpose for subjecting creation to corruption is not to destroy it, but to deliver it. Amazing to think about, isn't it? God's agenda for not just us as the people of God, but all of creation. Fifthly and finally, this the groaning of creation came from one man's sin, and deliverance has come through one man. As we prepare our hearts to celebrate the table of the Lord, we're recognizing the great central truth of the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Was corrupted and corroded and marred in Edom in reference to Genesis 3, then there must come forth one who will crush the head of the serpent. And God's word describes him as Jesus Christ. The only one that could make payment for our sin. We couldn't make payment for our sin. God gets in the way all the time. All who are justified by faith in Christ become the sons of God. chapter 8 is so great because it lifts our minds and our hearts off of creation and it takes them someplace else. It takes them to a final ultimate. This idea that, that you've come here today and you're on your own and you got to fix things and make everything right and it's all up to you, it, it doesn't square with Scripture. God the Spirit counsels us and draws us together on this great theme of the ages, this great meta-narrative, this big story
distinct sense that I would probably be in a wheelchair for some days. Maybe wearing polyester and plastic shoes. I'm not sure. I get a feeling that could be my story. Waiting for the dinner bell to ring or a call to a game of Hard Cheese in the afternoon drive. And I've thought about that. I've thought about that before this week. Brothers and sisters, it's going to be okay because I'll be almost home. It's that kind of thinking and vision that transforms the way I live my life. Okay? It's that kind of understanding that galvanizes us to do all we can with all we have for God's glory. It takes us away from this nasty bitterness and resentfulness. Why me? Why now? Why not them? And it just informs us that creation groans, and if God cares, I'm going to care as well. Alfred Ruckert says, where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. Oh, if God gives us perfected, not yet glorified, a struggling pilgrim on the way, growing slowly wise as God informs us of the future and also helps today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it continues to train us in godliness. Father, I, I pray for the brothers and sisters here simple things like 